0: Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz.
1: Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg
0: PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com.
1: Howard Marks, I loved your memo. Uh, thank you for coming in. Howard Marks, of course, is a legendary investor in debt markets and across all asset classes, frankly, uh, co-founder of Oaktree Capital Management. Uh, Howard, in your memo, you really outlined conditions that would necessitate being more cautious. Are we setting up conditions that are similar to what we saw in 2006, 2007, and that pre- are partic- precipitating a pretty big downturn?
2: Well, Lisa... It- it's easy to say we are seeing risky behavior in kind, but I don't think at all in degree. I mean, the conditions of O six seven were uh, exceptionally excessive and gave rise to, of course, the worst uh, financial experience of a lifetime. Right. Um, I don't think we're, we're nowhere near in that territory now. Well,
1: that's comforting.
2: Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the private sector and especially the financial sector is nowhere near as levered as it was at that time. And uh, they, in many cases, the leverage was used to invest in subprime-related mortgage-backed securities. Uh, and I don't think there's an al- analog to, to those now, yeah. so I, I'm not saying that we're looking at that. All I'm saying, and maybe I didn't make it clear enough, although I think I did, <laughs> is thats is that there is a time for caution, and there is a time for aggressiveness, and they're different, yeah. and it's important for a professional investor to make the distinction, and I believe that in relative terms, this is a time when one should emphasize caution over aggressiveness
1: and to be clear uh, even though you are saying caution you're not saying and you specifically said that you are not saying that this is a nonsensical bubble right. uh, It just uh, there is a high risk and valuations are high right. uh, so how do you proceed with caution can you give us an example of a type of asset that would be an appropriate buy at this time
2: my point is that within each investment strategy There are aggressive ways to pursue it and defensive ways to pursue it. Uh, An example, one of our activities is uh, distress debt. Yeah. The higher you are in the capital structure, the more dependably you make money. But when things go well, the less money you make. So do you wanna be high in the capital structure and have a very high probability of making money or low in the capital structure and maximize the return in good outcomes? And I would say that if, in a time for caution, you would move towards senior securities, increase your probability of making money, decrease the absolute payoff when things go great. So
1: you're you're willing to pay higher prices for uh, better secured assets, even though the absolute return uh, will be substantially less.
2: Right, well, what you, what you call higher prices, I would say we're lower willing years. to accept lower prospective returns for, for greater safety. That's what it's all about. If it, the, the conservative investor accepts lower expected returns as the price for greater safety there are times when that's highly appropriate, there are times when that's highly inappropriate. Our job is to figure out which this is.
1: So um, I've heard a lot of pension funds in particular say that they are seeking returns and safety from this sort of a ebullient environment in private debt markets. And there seems to be quite a lot of cash flowing into private right. debt. Has it gone too far and is it keeping companies alive that perhaps shouldn't be?
2: I can't say too far. It's gone far. The point is everybody says, oh, you should do this. We've, we're the only ones who've thought of that. If everybody's saying you should do this because we're the only ones who've thought of it, then it's really obviously not as novel a solution as they're suggesting. So, so the idea of private lending uh, is not undiscovered. Money has flowed in. I can't tell you whether it's an appropriate amount or too much. Uh, Clearly, the market is more competitive to make loans than it used to be. And when the market is more competitive, that implies lower prospective returns. Uh, I still think, however, that private lending is more appropriate today than, than buying public securities. Because the public money can't get to the private lending opportunities. Uh, and I think that the, the the public quest for high returns in a low return world has caused a lot of money to flow into senior loans and high yield bonds and so forth. And that is less true about uh, the private uh, debt market. Just, but I'll add one thing. When you move away from public markets, which nowadays we kind of call beta markets, because the return, uh, your return is determined by the return of the market in large part, to alpha markets, where your return is largely a factor of the skill of the manager, you are accepting a new kind of risk, which is substantial dependence on the skill of the manager.
1: Which is different than being in public markets or being in an index fund. Uh, You know, talking about index funds, you talked about the threat of all of the money that moved in, mm-hmm. moving out right. in tandem. Sure. Um, I hear a lot about cash on the sidelines, and I'm not sure exactly what they're talking about. I think uh, to a large degree, they're talking about private equity funds mm-hmm. that have all this dry powder lying around. Mm-hmm. To what extent will that cash on the sidelines buffer any declines?
2: Well, it depends on where they are and whether the cash on the sidelines is, is uh, uh, shall we say, flexible. For example, we raised money for a distressed debt fund. In the expectation that there would be an opportunity for distress, which has not uh, materialized yet, admittedly, um, and we, you know, if, if there is such an opportunity, we're going to swing into action. We're going to put that money to work. This is something we've done in the past. Well, we hope to do it in the future. If there's, we hope there'll be an opportunity, and we hope to do a good job with it. But given the nature of the investment business, if uh, if let's say uh, to follow your argument. Money flowed out of ETFs and they had to sell the, the the high flyers that have done so well based on ETF buying and they had to become sellers and that drove them down. We couldn't buy that because we can't take the money we raised for a distressed debt fund and buy public equities. So, uh, you know, in in the institutional investment business, we talk about something called buckets. Which bucket is your money for? And our bucket is for private distressed debt we can't take that money and buy put it into a different bucket which is public equities so if the if most of the dry powder is in private equity and private debt and so forth anybody who says oh you know if the market goes down those private equity guys will just go in and buy them up it's unlikely because people don't step out of their bucket that often.
1: So this is fascinating. Does that mean that there's more of a floor under prices of private debt, say, or
2: uh, distressed debt than there is for equities? Well, of course, the the private debt or distressed debt guys would say, no, no, we're going to let it drop before we buy. But clearly, the more buying power there is on the sidelines, uh, the more there's a floor, the less uh, things will, will drop unremittingly.
1: You were talking about how you don't think that there is uh, the same degree of leverage at investment banks that there was leading up to the 2008 crash. I am hearing more about leverage being used by hedge funds, in particular, to buy equities and investment-grade credit. Uh, How concerned are you about this? Have you been hearing about this?
2: The willingness to use more leverage after the market has risen, making people feel good, is indicative Of in my opinion, uh, the need for caution. Uh, If people are using leverage today, who didn't use leverage five years ago, well, is is today a better buying opportunity or a worse buying opportunity? Is is it safer today or riskier? I would say it's a worse buying opportunity and it's riskier. So why are you using leverage today that you didn't use uh, five years ago? The answer is, given the low prospective returns in all markets, it's hard to make money today. So more and more people resort to leverage. Leverage does not make an investment better, it only magnifies the results. It magnifies the gains, if there are gains, and losses if there are losses. And uh, so the question is, why would you use leverage today that you didn't use five years ago?
1: That's a good, invalid question. By the way, you know,
2: in, in Las Vegas, Lisa, they say the more you bet, the more you win when you win. Now, you can't argue with that statement, no. but, but any intelligent person should see the fallacy.
1: Uh, you know, you were uh, talking about uh, the uh, private equity and the, and the cash being raised. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, we have heard about the record amount of money, new record funds for uh, buyouts or private debt. Uh, do you think that the worst case scenario for these is that returns will be much lower or that it could potentially be even worse than that?
2: The most likely negative repercussion is that returns will be hard to come by and maybe lower than investors have in mind. There's always the possibility of negative returns, uh, but that would require uh, something nearly cataclysmic you know i think that i think that in 08 when the global financial crisis was raging after the lehman bankruptcy i believe that the private equity funds in general the, the funds of 05, 6, 7, maybe 8 were looking at the prospect of losing money it happens that the government did a great job of bailing out the financial sector which reopened the credit window, which enabled those companies to refinance their de- debts and push them off. And uh, also, of course, the government's bailout brought back the economy and uh, brought an end to, the, to a significant recession. And the combination of those things meant that those funds will now have moderate, I believe, high single-digit returns. And everybody will say, oh, not so bad. And uh, the, the returns on those funds will not be bad. I believe they could have been worse but for the things that went right.
1: So, talking about returns, uh, just uh, lastly, I, I wanna touch base with you on what you expect to be appropriate expectations for returns for, say, pension funds at this point. What's an appropriate
2: target? If you, if, if, if you walked into a pension fund today which had no investments, and you were given a pile of cash, and you invested today intelligently, prudently, but not shrinking from risk, I think you could expect to make something in the vicinity of 5% in the, in the, in the coming years from today. Um, if you take more risk and everything goes right, you'll make more and vice versa. Um, the problem is most pension funds need 7.5 to make the math work, to, to, to make today's assets turn into enough to pay tomorrow's uh, benefits. Uh, and I think that making seven and a half from today uh, will be uh, quite a challenge and will necessitate two things, substantial risk taking and and good outcomes.
1: Which means that there is a bigger risk of negative outcomes and uh, much lower than even 5% well, returns. Know, to,
2: to respond to the Las Vegas people, the more you bet, the more you lose when you lose. So you can't have it both ways. And I think that to, uh, most investors see that today's low return environment necessitates substantial risk-taking. But s- substantial risk-taking, if it runs into bad outcomes, will will lead to disappointment. That's all we can say for sure.
1: Howard Marks, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lisa. Howard Marks, co-founder of Oaktree Capital Management,
0: I can hear Chris Ailman singing this song. Chris Ailman, the chief investment officer of the California State <laughs> Teachers Retirement System. I believe he's got a little bit more than $208 billion under management. Uh, Chris, uh, you're on your bicycle now?
3: You have one in your office too? I no, I wish I was. I actually uh, tore the meniscus in my knee dancing at my daughter's uh, wedding, so I am off my bike for the summer. But oh. surgery, I'll be back soon, hopefully. Well, uh, congratulations it was all in, to your daughter. Yeah, it was
0: a, all on a good cause, as they say.
3: It, exactly. I yeah. was dipping her. I, I had father daughter dance. I got to dip her, and uh, boom, out went my knee. I didn't drop though, so it's okay. It was okay. wonderful.
0: Well, good. Yeah, that that's that's sort of like the investment philosophy, right? You know, you you take the risk and. Then you hope that nothing bad happens,
3: and you bounce back. So well,
0: good for I you. I agree because, with
3: Howard Marks, but uh, I I have a couple of other points to raise. Well,
0: I I want you to raise them. I just want to offer people the context for the California State Teachers Retirement System, which of course is the second largest U.S. pension fund. You earned thirteen point four percent in the fiscal year ended
3: June thirtieth. Well done. Booyah! You there you go. That, does that make up double. for the for the bad years? You know, well, look at this, Tim. We made 10% over five years. Uh, we've made just about 7% over the last 20 years. And annualized. That includes You're annualized annuals, yeah. net of fees. That includes two very nasty recessions. Right. So. Well, that's uh,
0: that 7.5 bogey, right? The 7.5% uh, hurdle.
3: No, it is below that, but it's right at about seven. We're lowering our assumption rate from seven and a half to seven and a quarter last year, seven percent this coming year.
1: So you said that you had some uh, some responses to Howard Marx's comments where he basically said that going forward, if pension funds were to invest new money today, all of their money new, not including older uh, legacy investments, that they could probably reliably get a five percent return without taking excessive risk and risking uh, potential losses. Do you agree with that?
3: Let me frame the way – and I think for your investor uh, your listeners, it would help to frame that. Think about 2016 and seventeen as a vintage year. So your IRA contribution this year, your money, if you invested it, as he's saying, this year, new money, what's a realistic expectation for that over the near term? Five percent might be acceptable. The difference is I invest every year. Again and again for 30 years. So right now in my portfolio, I have investments that are over 25 years old that were made in the at the end of the 90s where they're going to have a double-digit return. And I think 7% over the next 30 years is a realistic number. If you use today as a starting date, and that's where Howard's coming from. Capital asset prices are expensive, whether it's equities, public securities and private securities are almost priced to perfection. And so we recognize that new money going to work this year may not have that great of a return. This vintage year for private equity, this vintage year for real estate, you can't expect to buy a building at these prices and have a really high return. As he pointed out, when prices drop, and that's when Howard loves to invest, when when prices go down, then he'll come into the market, and so will we. I often say, we're counter-cyclical. We have 30-year money. We don't have to buy at the top. We can wait and be patient and and look for lower prices. And that's been a big discussion of my staff. I was just with a a group of CIOs up in Canada last week. That was our key discussion, was asset prices being priced to perfection. How much dry powder should you hold back? Uh, How cautious should you be? Well, so how much dry
1: powder are you holding back?
3: Well, right now we're over 2% in cash, and my staff met last week and is talking about potentially raising that. We've been taking profits, Lisa, in this U.S. equity market since the start of the year. Every time it hits a new high, we just shave off a little bit of that profit. We've been putting that in Europe and in Asia, but also building up our our de-risking assets, assets that, that do better or hold value when the markets go down um so those assets didn't do well last year because the market was up so so strong but we're trying to balance that portfolio you've heard me say year after year to the to the listeners it's all about rebalancing your asset allocation don't let your equities run rebalance into the the less risky assets and i think that's what howard's saying
0: well, Chris Ailman, uh you know you you spend a lot of time listening to pundits and experts, and you know you read all the reports. I mean, what you're what you're proposing sounds pretty reasonable, and you don't necessarily need a PhD to figure this out, or do you? No, you don't.
3: I listen to you. You're the pundits, you're the experts.
0: <laughs> don't do that.
3: I, I, you know that I listen to you. I ride my bike to work sometimes, and I and I listen to you guys. So, and I hear. And you're right. It, it, but it, but my point is, every time
0: you ask, Chris, every time you ask someone when to sell, no one ever has an answer.
3: Oh, I, exactly. But but look at the sage advice from people like Warren Buffett. You You buy when everybody is nervous and you sell when everybody is greedy. So right now, things are priced to perfection. But even as Howard, he put out a newsletter last week where he said it's it's they're at it again, again. Uh, but he admits he's often early. We're at the we're in the late stages of this economic expansion, but it could last for another year or even two years. Uh, okay, you don't so, know when it will crack.
1: So let's talk about that because we have heard from some pensions, particularly in uh, in. Uh, Canada. Uh, They have been investing directly in companies, buying them directly, basically competing with private equity companies. I know that CalPERS uh, is considering doing the same. What about Calsters?
3: We're looking at the idea of teaming up with people. We don't think we want to start from scratch. Um, We want to team up with people that are already in the marketplace. And this is part of recognizing, as Pim was hitting me with, lower return environment, we can make a return out of private equity but if we can reduce our costs a little bit of investing in private equity that enhances our return so the idea of going and buying mid-sized companies directly instead of the old 2 and 20 private equity model is much more attractive and we've recognized the spread in private equity has come come down you're not getting 300 basis points or a full Three percent over public stocks. You're probably only getting 150 or one and a half percent over public stocks, but you're still getting a premium over public markets.
0: Chris, just quickly, uh, is the, uh, the investing environment for let's say environmentally friendly companies or companies that uh, respect the environment and so on, uh, the socially responsible, is that a key theme or is that something that was just a buzzword and has gone away?
3: Tim, I think we're going to see today and into the future, I would describe it as managements that actually think bigger and broader than just the risks that appear in the next 90 days. Managements that look out three to five years and think about a broad section of material risk to their business. Those companies are going to outperform other companies
1: says the man who rides his bike to work. Chris Ailman, always a pleasure. We love speaking with you. Chris Ailman is chief investment officer of the California State Teachers Retirement System with more than $200 billion under management. It's based in Sacramento, California.
0: Now, let's turn our attention to Sprint. I want to find out what's going on there. We've got John Butler. He is an expert when it comes to telecom and uh, telecom equipment, and he is joining us now. He's, of course, from Bloomberg Intelligence. And John, Sprint up 10%. That's the stock right now. What are they doing? What What's uh, causing this big move
4: higher? Well, Sprint did okay in the quarter. You know, it was steady as she goes. Um <laughs> Frankly, you know, I, they always do a very good job about sort of managing investor expectations and giving people the sense that they're riding the ship, and they are. But it really is a cost-cutting thing for them more than a top-line story at this point. What I think is driving the stock up is CEO Marcelo Claret was asked about potential Combinations, Re- combinations, combinations, right? Strategic combinations, strategic mergers, charter. Yes. And he told people to expect something coming soon, um, in the near future. I believe was the term he used. Uh, what are I, some
0: of the What are some of the possibilities in John Butler's?
4: Well, mind? before I answer that, yeah. I'll just say I hope he's right. You know, Sprint has been on the block for a while. Um, SoftBank, and in particular, CEO. Uh, Masayoshi san owns 80% of Sprint and he has really tried to monetize that asset for a long time now. So,
0: tried to it, sell it.
4: Yeah. And it feels like a house that's been on the market a little bit too long. <laughs> you know, it begins to get uh, people wondering as to, to you know, aging. To, yeah. What's really wrong there? But, You know, there's a convergence now happening between cable and telecom, or it's looming more than anything. You see AT&T buying Time Warner, getting into content. Verizon has uh, shown interest there through AOL and Yahoo, both of which have a lot of content. And there's been talk that they're kicking the tires in media land. So... You know, the potential for a cable company to buy Sprint or Sprint to buy a cable company has been high on the rumor mill. Um, You know, there's, again, potential, there's bundling potential there, right? Where people can buy their wireless, their cable, their broadband, all from one provider.
1: You know, I have to say, John, and I, this just shows the narrow lens with through which I see the world. But I hear Sprint and I think, wow, they're the biggest issuer in the high yield bond market, in the $1.3 trillion US high yield bond market. Uh, They have more than $24 billion in the uh, main index that people track. And this just makes me wonder I mean, first of all, would any buyer have to assume that de- debt and how much of an uh, obstacle is that to purchase? And second of all, if it doesn't fall through, is there a chance that Spring could go into a spiral and, and sort of fail to pay the the mounting uh, uh, interest payments that it owes?
4: Well, I'll start by saying, thank God I'm not our credit analyst. We have a telecom <laughs> credit analyst named Steve Flynn who, who knows the details better than I do. But I will say, if someone did acquire Sprint, they would probably have to acquire that debt. And I think Sprint is on a track now where they're sort of out of danger in terms of making those payments. Things can change overnight in telecom, as we all know, but based on the current trajectory, um, I would say they're in pretty good shape for now.
1: Apple, the earnings are coming out. What do you expect? You know,
4: uh, the current quarter doesn't matter. People are really, all eyes are on September, uh, the September quarter, which is their fiscal fourth quarter. Um, They have the launch of, of the new iPhones coming. And just to sort of set the table, we're expecting three new iPhones. So we'll get sort of a standard feature update of the iPhone 7 and 7 Plus that are on the market now. So the iPhone 7S and the 7S Plus. Will have a similar screen, probably offer wireless charging, truly wireless or uh, waterproof ports, and maybe a better camera. That's typically what you see. With, you know, those kind of feature upgrades are what you see with uh, that sort of talk year where you just get um, modest upgrades. But yeah. it is the 10-year anniversary of the iPhone, and there will be hopefully a third iPhone called the iPhone X or the iPhone 8, as I've been calling it, which will be a much bigger device, rumored to have a 5.8 inch screen, Yeah, no bezels or those little side bars that frame the screen on the side. Uh, So they're going bezel-less, which will give you more real estate there. (laughs) And, um, you know, there's been talk of component
1: delays. I think people are worried about that. John Butler, Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Always our pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L Podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.